HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Henry's Wine and Spirit. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Cora Lee. A writing and rhetoric professor at Colgate University, Jennifer LeMessure is interested in the ways we communicate, with and without sounds, with our bodies, and even the ways we don't entirely intend to. She's written on writing, written on rhetoric, and most recently published an article on the persisting negative connotation of MSG and by extension Chinese food and its peoples. Welcome, Jennifer. Hello. So what sparked your own personal interest in rhetoric and embodiment? I was just trying to um, post something on Instagram about you, and I f- saw that you have dancer in your, your handle. So what kind of brought oh, those yeah. t- together? <laughs> yeah, so I actually I majored in dance as an undergrad, and I danced all through grad school. And when I originally started grad school, um, I went into an English department. Uh, my thought was I'm just going to teach writing. Maybe I'll teach at a community college. I don't care about that theory stuff. <laughs> And then I get into the coursework, and I'm like, okay, we have all these theories about how language affects us, but there's not a lot of literature on how the body is a really integral part of that um, process. So uh, an easy example is um, obviously presidential speeches have been in the news a lot, and a traditional rhetorical approach would look just at the words that the president spoke. Um, but as we've seen, especially in the past couple of years, gesture is a huge part of it. Tone of voice is a huge part of it. Um, there are all these other uh, embodied aspects that make a message more or less convincing. Mm-hmm. So can you actually explain what embodiment means in uh, the linguistic and rhetoric realm? Oh, goodness. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a question where you ask uh, two different people and you'll get three different answers. Uh, for me, I prioritize looking at the idea of movement. So how do the ways in which we are trained to move um, consciously or unconsciously, so you know, you could be a dancer with very formal training, um, or it could be very unconscious, like you have a very strict parent who trains you to sit a certain way um, or to show respect in a certain way. 
Um, so how do all those forms of movement training shape how you're able to persuade others or be persuaded? Um, but in the field of rhetoric, there's a, there's a broader um, understanding of embodiment as just anything related to the body. How is the body used as a symbol, for example? Or um, how is gender, which is something that is very embodied, how does that sort of always hum in the background, uh, especially with some of the discussions we've been having um, so much recently in relation to Me Too? Mm-hmm. And what do linguists study? And is that different than what you were mentioning about studying the body? So technically, I, I would consider myself a rhetorician. I have studied linguistics in the past. Um, ling- uh, linguistics and rhetoric and writing studies and composition, um, different disciplinary histories, uh, some more related to psychology, some more related to literature, um, some more related to instruction. But they're all really concerned with the question of, so language is more than just this neutral medium, right? Mm-hmm. Because if it was just a neutral tool, then we'd never have misunderstandings, we'd never, uh, we'd never make bad jokes and have those awkward silences. So then what is it, right? It, what does it do in the world that is really hard to pin down, but really fascinating to see and to study? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what are some, I know this is a huge question, but what are some examples of situations or uh, actions that causes words to gain unintended meanings or even lose meaning? Mm, that is a big question. Well, so I'll focus on gain meaning because that's probably a bit more concrete. Uh, so you look at the news right now, and if I, if I talk too much about politics, please tell me to stop. <laughs> no, sort of I welcome a, it. It's, it's, a, it's an easy thing. Uh, so I can say me too, and I'm guessing for you and most of your listeners, you picture that in your head with a hashtag in front of it. Mm-hmm. Now, there's nothing in those words that inherently means that they have to be together in no space. It has to look like a Twitter hashtag. But because of the repetition and the frequency and the emphasis that we've been seeing in the public discourse recently, that has become its own thing that is separate from the words me and to themselves. It, it's become, uh, it's developed a force of its own. Mm-hmm. So part of its repetition, um, part of its cultural, part of it is uh, what news you consume. It's not like you can easily, and this is part of the struggle within rhetoric, is that we understand that uh, what causes something to be persuasive or not is situational, but then how do you define a situation? And, you know, there's lots of arguments going on in the field right now. Um, but really just thinking about what are forces beyond just the speaker and listener, right? What are the histories that are going on? Mm-hmm. What are the political references, um, familial tendencies, et cetera, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we'll get to your article on MSG later, but um, I think two examples of this are you use um, the words Orientalism and Far East in the article, which when I read them, I kind of had an immediate reaction and I realized, you know, there really isn't. Um, you, you weren't intending to use it in a very charged way, but how did words like those gain those meanings? Mm-hmm. So in rhetoric, and, and this is where it's interesting, and and I mean interesting and horrifying all at the same time, and I think part of why we're having some of the arguments in the public sphere um, recently about race and gender and culture. So 
um, in rhetoric, the concern is always with your audience. And so for myself, as an Asian American woman, I can look at those words. And if, you know, if they're in print, I understand that there might not be an intention to harm myself. But there's still an awareness that comes because of my experience as an Asian American woman in America. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing it was somewhat similar for you or perhaps other readers um, who share uh, some of those identity features. Um, but the thing is, if you have someone else who they've never heard those terms, if they've never heard Oriental in any term, in any context except a, his- a history textbook or a really old movie, it's really easy for members of that audience to say, oh, well, it's all old, it's all in the past, we've, we've moved beyond that. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it's necessarily that, um, it, it's not that words such as those entirely lose their meaning. It's about which audience is, is in power or who has the most bandwidth to talk about it the most. Because, I mean, I'm sure if you ask someone who, I mean, we still have people in this in this country who were uh, placed in Japanese internment camps. I'm sure if you ask them about those terms, they would find those, they would find Oriental and Far East very charged. Mm-hmm. Versus, you know, if you ask a 15-year-old who lives in, I don't know, Los Angeles and it's like, oh, yeah, I hang out with Asians all the time. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Right. I was actually, um, I was thinking that even repetition can work the other way and that they it adds two words losing meaning. So do you think it, it's also just a, m- a matter of exposure? Uh, do you have an example of words losing meaning? Sure. Like I, for my mom, it's really easy for her to use words like Oriental and Far East and not really think that much of it. But I think it's because she's always used it and hears her friends use it. And so I think it, it loses mm. its original charge. Do you think it, the repetition can work both ways? I do, and that's what makes it so tricky, right, is that in the case of your mom, and I mean, we, I'm sure all of our moms have words that are like this, mm-hmm. uh, within that smaller community, it's totally fine, whatever the word is. But then you, you take that word and you place it in a larger context where all of a sudden you have competing histories and competing understandings, and that's where it gets really, it gets really tricky. Mm-hmm. So let's kind of back up a little bit um, and so and talk about um, the intersection of rhetoric and food. You mentioned this uh, article or book by Fry and Bruno. Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, just what the rhetoric of food mm-hmm. is, what the whole thing is in general. Well, there's a there's a couple ways to define it. So um, so Fry and Bruno um, were talking about sort of the rhetoric that surrounds food more broadly. So how do we speak about food? Um, How do we label food? Um, How do those labels connect food to cultures in certain ways that are either good or bad or that are valued in certain ways? Um, And then also beyond just text, what are the practices that accompany uh, um, food culture? Right. So, how how are rituals? How are um, how are those sorts of practices? Um, how do they represent food and uh, allow people to think about food in certain ways? Um, there's also, if you think from a more embodied perspective, I mean, food itself is rhetorical. 
right? If you are sort of on the fence about somebody and they invite you over to uh, a home-cooked meal, right? Even that phrase, home-cooked meal, connotes all this warmth and generosity. All of a sudden, you have a slightly stronger connection with that person than you did before. So, so rhetoric. Could you food, sorry? Food could you rhetoric. actually explain that a little more by uh, what you said by um, food is rhetorical? Mm-hmm. Well, so there's there's the framing of it. There's the textual framing of it saying, I'm going to invite you over for a home-cooked meal, mm-hmm. and you, you know, you're at the office or wherever you are, and you're like, oh, that's, that's nice. You recognize the, the sort of uh, the, the kindness in that offer. Mm-hmm. But that's different, um, and it's, it can be complemented by or, or augmented by or, or undermined by how the meal actually goes, right? So mm-hmm. if you go and, for example, you uh, have never eaten spicy food before, and you, you know, you go to a colleague who's from Pakistan, and they have a very spicy meal. It doesn't really matter, you know, how polite they are, or how polite you are. You're going to have a slightly more intense reaction to that meal just because it's so different. Mm-hmm. And I, it, that's not to say that like it will automatically go bad or automatically go good, um, but just that you have. To, if we're talking about food, which is something that is inherently based in action, in process then you have to account for how that process itself can be persuasive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was reading um, about the idea of embodied cognition, and there is a study where two strangers were kind of put in this room, um, and they were told to progressively reveal intimate details about themselves, and the more comfortable they got with each other, the more they mimicked each other's behaviors. So what Mm -hmm. are the larger ramifications of this in understanding each other and each other's foods? Mm, hmm mm hmm I mean, that's such, a, that's such an interesting study, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I could go off in, in a couple different directions there. Um, I mean, so food as a symbol, and I, this goes back to your early question as well, food is often held up as the ideal way of forming a connection across cultural barriers, linguistic barriers, religious barriers, you know, we just need to break bread. We just mm-hmm. need to have a meal together. And I think part of that is the intimacy, the bodily intimacy of being next to someone and you're experiencing the, the sensuousness of eating a meal and using your hands and, you know, someone's mouth is full and you can smell and see and taste all at the same time while you're interacting with this person. Um, and I think sometimes it's so every day that we forget how powerful an experience like that is or can be. And so the idea of embodied cognition, um, I mean, again, that's a term that could go, that could have many definitions, but at its heart, it's really just sort of recognizing that our brains are not disconnected from our body, Mm -hmm. right? The way that we encounter the world and think about the world and understand the world, these things that, that we tend to define as purely mental or purely intellectual, those are very much shaped by the bodily experiences we have alongside those intellectual experiences. Mm-hmm. So how does this complicate, uh, and this is another loaded question, how does this complicate our understanding or attempt to define, quote-unquote, authenticity? Mm, that's interesting. So I was thinking about this idea of authenticity as I was thinking about what I would say today. And 
<laughs> I, I, I went to the thesaurus, um, which is something that, you know, I, I tell my students not to do. Just like, don't just, <laughs> don't just go and grab a word from the thesaurus. But I feel like the, the conversation around authenticity has become so loaded. But at the same time, there's something really important there. Because we wouldn't keep having this conversation if it, if it wasn't really important. And one of the synonyms that I think is, is partially related to your question and this larger issue um, is the word genuine. I think there's something about seeking a genuine experience, um, which is very related to, you know, the intimacy of sharing food with strangers or with close friends. Um, And I think sometimes we're seeking that when the question of authenticity comes up. Mm -hmm. And is it... Because if you... I was just going to say, is it genuine to the eater, to the restaurant, to who, who defines or who gets to choose what genuine means? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a whole kettle of fish then, isn't it? (laughs) Um, I think, I think because there's been so much debate, um, from the eater side specifically, Mm -hmm, and, uh, you shared with, you you shared with me that article in Eater about, uh, Yelp reviews. And sort of who, what um, restaurants get labeled kitschy, and I mean, oftentimes it is the 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 restaurants that are attached to ethnicities that are lower on the the cultural hierarchy, and what restaurants are labeled as as warm and welcoming, luxurious, all the the, the better adjectives. Um, so I think it might help us rethink the question a little bit if we ask ourselves. So if an eater or a restaurant goer is looking for something genuine, then what is it that they're missing? Because then I think that helps us reroute the conversation away from, oh, well, sort of the, the crude, um, sort of the crude genetic argument or crude geographical argument of like, oh, well, you know, you're only you're only half Japanese. You can't cook Japanese, which is, you know, I, I don't like that argument at all. Perhaps mm-hmm. someone can argue it really well. Um, and I, I mean, even for myself, so I'm a Korean adoptee. So people look at me and respond to me as though I am fully Korean a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I was raised by American individuals. You know, my mom's core Spanish. My dad was half Norwegian. You know, I grew up saying Ufta and I would get weird looks when we'd go to Norwegian parts of Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, all that is to say that I think sometimes authentic or that term can send us down these rabbit holes that that actually isolate us further. Whereas I think something like genuine can actually open us up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And so to dive deeper into this kettle of fish, how do you interpret or um, kind of wrestle with the idea of cultural appropriation? Okay, man. Well, so cultural appropriation, that's a word that, I mean, speaking of words gaining or losing meaning, I mean, that's another aspect of this, too, is that as words get, get taken up into the, into the public sphere, they can take on different meanings. And so then there's all these competing meanings attached to a word or a phrase. Um, off topic slightly, but there's that, the controversy right now over the Gillette commercial. Oh, can you talk about it? Can you explain it? Oh, so uh, Gillette just put out a commercial where they sort of try to tackle head-on this idea of toxic masculinity. And it has all these 
examples of, you know, quote-unquote boys being boys and, you know, men behaving badly. And then Gillette comes in and says, you know, we as a company want to stand for something different, right? Gillette is the best a man can get. We want you to act better. And it shows these men, quote-unquote, acting better and, and stepping in and saying, actually, don't catcall that woman. Actually, don't beat up that other person. And there's all this controversy because uh, a lot of men are saying, essentially, how dare you lump me in with all those men, hmm. which I which I think is is a misreading of the commercial, but right. that's the point. Um, but what I thought was super interesting is that I was reading the comments on YouTube, which I don't recommend. They're horrible. But people were starting to use the term toxic femininity in response. Oh. Which I'm like, okay. So as someone who studies gender, like I definitely think you could argue that there is talk there are toxic feminine ideals. Like I actually think it'd be really interesting to explore that. But what are some examples? Oh, I mean, uh, unrealistic beauty standards, regardless of body type and uh, environmental factors. I mean, I think that's a toxic expectation mm-hmm. um, that if you identify as feminine, you are supposed to live up to. And if you don't, you're policed by society in all sorts of awful ways, like fat shaming and slut shaming and all those, all those fun things. All those <laughs> so fun things. there weren't overt examples of toxic femininity in the article or in the um, commercial. They were just using it as binary or something. Yes, okay. exactly. So that's, and that's why I thought it was so interesting because it was people who did not like the definition or the way that the the idea of toxic masculinity was being used, and so their response was to try and flip the script and say, oh, well, there must be toxic femininity. And like I said, it's, you know, I I think you could get someplace interesting with that. But it's more how are, when you introduce a term like that into the public sphere, and so toxic masculinity or cultural appropriation, people are going to respond by not just being negative. They're going to respond by tearing it down and also trying to create competing meanings, Mm -hmm. right? So in the debate on cultural appropriation, you see a lot of people saying they'll have all these straw man arguments, but they'll they'll say, oh, well, you know, so I can't eat Italian anymore because I'm I'm not Italian. Uh, Or um, how dare that person wear a a green shirt on St. Patrick's Day. That's, you're appropriating my ancestors' culture. And, And the idea behind those those straw man arguments is to try and say, look, this is a, this is overblown. But I think part of what is actually happening is they're trying to reduce the force of the phrase cultural appropriation by, by adding all these meanings that are, that are on the face of it really silly and really, you know, sort of innate. Mm-hmm. So in tying this back to the Eater article, how would you kind of prescribe a quote-unquote kitschy restaurant to then proceed? Are they only allowed to cook the cuisine from their culture? Or are they allowed to kind of venture out? So if you're saying if a restaurant was labeled kitschy right. by someone else? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's such an interesting question. I mean, the word kitschy... I don't have the definition in front of me, right? But I don't think the, the the definition, if you use the word kitschy against someone, 
right? Mm-hmm. And that, so, get, so getting back to linguist, that the definition is slightly different from the way it's actually used in everyday conversation. Mm-hmm. So if you use the word kitschy, you're trying to sort of put the restaurant down. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't think the restaurant has to take that as, you don't have to take it at face value, right? I mean, I would look at that as a rhetorician and say, okay, um, that person just wasn't part of your target audience, and they can have that opinion, but it, that doesn't mean that you inherently are, like on some epistemological level, a kitschy restaurant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, we're going to come back to this. We're going to actually focus more so on your MSG article, but we're going to take a quick break. This episode is presented by Henry's Wine and Spirit, a go-to shop for anyone interested in natural wines and boutique spirits. There's a large selection of everything from orange wines, pet nats, and reds from around the world. Whether visiting the shop in person or online, looking for a gift for a loved one, or that everyday dependable bottle, you're sure to find lots of interesting wines at Henry's. There's free shipping on orders over $300 on the website henrys.nyc and case discounts when you visit the store located in Bushwick. Cheers. And we're back. Um, so we were just talking about kitschy restaurants, and now we're going to kind of pivot and talk about your article, which I feel like is 25 minutes in a bit long overdue. Um, can you talk about what initially sparked your interest in um, studying the MSG conundrum? Sure. Yeah, so it started really... Uh, out of nowhere, frankly. I I wasn't studying uh, food rhetoric at all. Um, My husband and I were watching uh, Mind of a Chef. Mm -hmm. Oh, which episode? uh, It was the very first episode of the very first season. So David Chang, and he was talking about his love of MSG. And uh, there was just a throwaway, throwaway line in the episode about how MSG is not actually chemically harmful to the body at all. And the entire controversy started with one letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I just sort of sat there and I thought, huh, you know, I'm someone who studies text and this TV show was telling me that literally one itty bitty letter started this whole belief about a substance. Before this and episode, so, were you afraid of MSG, or did you believe the the claims? Uh, I had heard the claim before. I didn't believe it. I mean, I certainly ate Chinese food without any fear of this mythical Chinese restaurant syndrome. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I, I hadn't um, actively taken a stance and realized, and I, I hadn't realized um, how the myth was really rooted in these very racist ideas of Chinese culture and Chinese food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go on. So, yeah. I, mm-hmm. uh, well, after that, I just I went to the library, and I found the letter. And it was a really short letter um, signed Dr. Robert Ho Man Kwok. And I just sort of was flipping through the next few issues of the New England Journal of Medicine. And all these letters in response were flooding in. And I'm sitting there in the because I was in the medical library at the University of Washington, and there's all these stressed-out med students, you know, studying. And I'm sitting there in the stacks just laughing because 
the letters that responded were so outrageous. They were really, there were a whole bunch of really bad poetry. There were limerick, limericks. Um, there were, I, I asked my friends who studied poetry, and I was like, is this a sonnet? And they're like, that's not anything. That's just a bad poem. <laughs> um, but there are all these really bad poems, you know, basically making fun of the idea of MSG and Chinese food. Mm-hmm. And I just, I didn't really know what to do with it. So I just, I photocopied everything and uh, was like, huh. And that was the start of really doing a deep dive into Chinese food in America and thinking through, you know, what are the messages that are still, that still exist about Chinese food. Mm-hmm. And so I have all these questions about uh, Dr. Robert Homan Kwok, but then you just emailed me and told me that he's not real. Can you explain that whole unfolding and the realization of that? Yes, so that that was very interesting. So I started teaching at Colgate University uh, in upstate New York in 2015. And last year, I or I'm sorry, and then my article was published in 2017. I was working on it um, uh, when I got hired, and then it got published a couple of years later. And then last year, so 2018, I get a call, um, or more specific, I got a voicemail, and it's this elderly gentleman, and he introduces himself, and he's like, I, I am Dr. Howard Steele, I'm a Colgate alum, et cetera, et cetera. And then he says, boy, have I got a surprise for you. I am Dr. Ho Man Clock. No. <laughs> and I'm listening to his voicemail, and my jaw is just dropping. I'm like, what? And so I call him, and I get uh, him and his daughter, who are both lovely people. And I will say, sadly, uh, uh, Dr. Steele passed last September. Um, but I did have the chance to talk with him a bit. And so evidently, he was an orthopedic surgeon. And if you look him up, he he did amazing work. Um, I really have the utmost respect for him. Uh, But he was an orthopedic surgeon, and evidently orthopedic surgeons in the late 1960s were the grunts of the medical field. And so his friend was like, yeah, you're not smart enough to get anything published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And he's like, I bet you 10 bucks I can. And so Dr. Steele was just riffing on his recent experience, because, you know, in med school, they go out, they don't eat well, they drink a lot of beer, and you feel bad the next day. And he's like, yeah, everyone will recognize that experience. I'm going to write into the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm going to title it Quack, and they'll recognize that, you know, the the axiom crock of FM. Mm-hmm. And it'll all blow over. It'll all be nothing. But they printed it. It started get, getting all these responses. And to this day, he does not understand why the journal did not retract retract his letter because he kept calling, um, he kept leaving messages and saying, this is a joke, this is a hoax, please retract this. But they didn't. Hmm. So this, this makes it even worse. I feel like um, even though the theories got laughed at and this whole thing was a joke, why are these theory still taking hold so strongly in even today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was really interesting. Once I stopped laughing at the, the, the bad poetry um, and started looking at what they were, they were saying, there's, it was really interesting to see how the poems, and I think to some extent um, 
what people think today, right, were really based on this fake idea of Chineseness, right? So uh, the poem is referencing like bird's nest soup as something that, you know, yeah, you just go get that at your local Chinese restaurant, which is entirely not true. And, you know, shark fin soup and all these really exotic, um, quote unquote, very oriental, you know, exotic dishes. Mm-hmm. And I think even today, you know, if you ask someone, you know, what's your favorite Chinese dish? Are they going to say something that's, that has any roots in any sort of Chinese tradition? Or are they going to, to, to call out something that has a more Chinese American tradition, like chow mein or general Tso's chicken? Mm-hmm. Something that has been, um, you know, uh, sort of refined for the American palate. Um, and so I think you've got the two sides of this coin where people just don't understand what Chinese culture is. But at the same time, we have access to all this ostensible Chinese food. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the one danger of, of uh, food's rhetorical power, is that on the one hand, it's so intimate, you feel like you know the people really well once you've had a meal with them. But at the same time, I think the problem is that it can stop people from asking questions. Mm-hmm. It can say, you know, people can end up just saying like, oh yeah, I eat Chinese food all the time. Like, I'm cultured. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, insert ethnicity or, or region of choice. Mm-hmm. And you, I think you see that sort of um, just fakeness, you know, this 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 uh, illusion of Chineseness play out both in why people are so afraid of MSG um, and some of the discussions today. Mm-hmm. So in the uh, the joke, the hoax letter, what was Chinese restaurant syndrome described as? And um, yeah, what what was it? So there were a whole bunch of people who wrote in, and part of my article is, is trying to parse, okay, are, were you being serious? Um, were you in on the joke? Were you, um, was it the, the placebo effect? And uh, there was one doctor in particular, um, uh, or I should say there are a couple doctors who they wrote in one of the letters that really started the idea of Chinese restaurant syndrome, and that was uh, Schamberg and Bick. And they described it as, you know, um, dizziness. Uh, I think uh, they, they use the word lacrimation, which means crying. Um, and then, you know, sweating and uh, excessive thirst. So basically something if you ate a really spicy, really salty meal and you ate too much of it. Um, but what was weird is that in the next letters, people started describing all these really random things like, oh, I, you know, I almost fainted. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my child ate chow mein and all of a sudden she got really hyper and started licking her plate. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, she's a toddler. <laughs> mm-hmm. That sometimes happens. Um, but bas- so basically, there, I mean, there is no well-defined Chinese restaurant syndrome. Um, there are certain symptoms that the press sort of uh, took up. Uh, the popular press, so headaches were the the main thing. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because the CRS really became this receptacle for everything that people might have felt or noticed while they were eating. 
Mm-hmm. I remember reading in your article, and this is the one I laughed aloud at, is that it was blamed for sexual transgressions as well. And so what does that scare off? What, how does this align um, CRS or even Chinese people as completely other and maybe even counter to American culture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think all of it. Um, I mean, that I, I laughed a lot at that letter when I found it. Um, I think all of it definitely points to this othering right? Oh, this food looks different. Oh, this food smells different. It's not just Wonder Bread and mayo. Um, it's different colors. It's And again, like the, int- the intimacy of eating food, of taking it into your body. Um, I mean, it sort of makes sense why there would be fear there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think what's really interesting is so often um, we don't pay attention to what we eat. So there's been a whole bunch of stuff recently with, you know, self-care and mindfulness and meditation. And, I mean, this isn't anything new, but you see you see it emphasized a lot now. Uh, people will say, you know, make sure, you know, turn off your phone. Don't be browsing email when you eat lunch. Just take 10 minutes for yourself and just enjoy. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of funny that that is so radical right, that we, in essence, are so disconnected from our bodies in this really fundamental, you know, necessity to live. Mm -hmm. And I find it sort of, I I don't really think this is a positive or negative, but I do find it interesting that the flip side of that exoticness, that otherness, is, whoa, all of a sudden you're more connected to your body. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, the spicy food is making me sweat. Oh, I need to drink more water because... Um, you know, that, that dish had peppers in it. So do you think the symptoms felt more violating because it was like eating is such a intimate or vulnerable moment and you're, on top of that you're eating something exotic? I mean, I think that definitely played into it, especially in some of the later responses that um, weren't joking but were people trying to figure out if this was actually a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I do think that sense of, oh, this could be something new, this could be something, uh, this could be something foreign that we need to identify and sort of enclose. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you said that the um, New England Journal of Medicine, that's the magazine, or the journal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that they never retracted it. So what do they gain from persisting this um, kind of hoax? That's an interesting question. I'm honestly not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I can speculate and say it would be minorly embarrassing for a pres- I mean, it's it's the medical journal, so mm-hmm. it'd be sort of embarrassing to say, oh, yeah, we got we got hoaxed. We got punked. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I sort of wonder if it was just something as simple as that. It's like, oh, we'll just leave it alone. It will go away. Mm-hmm. But then it did not. Right. And so we see huge examples of this Chinese othering in, I mean, in these letter exchanges alone. But what are some present day examples of othering that you see still going on? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, you that's there's so many examples. Mm -hmm. So in rhetoric, we have this concept of identification um, and it's it's not. Uh, solely a rhetorical concept, but it's it's a central concept in the rhetoric. And uh, 
the idea is that whenever you identify with someone, you are necessarily identifying against someone else. And you see that pretty clearly in the public sphere, right? If you, if you are a conservative, right, and you introduce yourself that way, the person uh, you're introduced to automatically says, okay, so you're not this, mm-hmm. right? And so then our world very quickly becomes, you are this and you are not this. You are this, you are not this. And, I mean, there's definitely, I mean, you just, you turn on the news, there's plenty of examples. I th- I'm thinking of um, any sort of political protest or rally, right, where you have the physical manifestation of that, where you have people holding signs on one side versus the other, right? Mm-hmm. I literally, there is no possible way I can share any ground with you. It doesn't matter that we're both human. It doesn't matter that we're both in the same city. You have identified as this over here. And therefore, you, there is no way you overlap with anything that I am doing over here. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, th- that... Mm-hmm. No, keep going. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, that's that's it on a really abstract level. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at some of my, my colleagues' work, uh, like if you look at the rhetoric of terrorism, right? I mean, Muslim Americans are still often very othered mm-hmm. as, you know, you, there's... And it's talked about uh, in these strangely tacitly uh, appeals to authenticity, right? Well, you know, it doesn't matter that they've lived here for 20 years, you know? They're just, they they have that religion. So, you know, it's just, it's something that's going to come out or leak out. It's in their blood. It's in their genetics. Those are all um, really negative appeals to authenticity. Mm-hmm. So for marginalized um, populations or communities like these, what are the ways you would prescribed to navigate these stereotypes, just ignore them or reappropriate them? What do you think? Mm, mm, that's a real, that's a million dollar question right, right there. I, I can't see myself ever using Oriental or Far East in common conversation. So genuine question. Right, right. <sighs> I mean, there are some, I will say, I don't think that we need to, to see it as we must rehabilitate all terms. Um, I mean, uh, language is constantly changing and not always for the worse, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, if you look at how, like, the LGBTQ acronym has changed and evolved and, you know, you you have not just paying lip service to inclusion but also a recognition and a representation. Like, I think that's a a positive change. Um, I mean, thinking about, about slurs and those words sort of like oriental that are, they're not quite slurs. They're not quite, uh, innocent. I mean, I think that is something where, where time will really help us figure out what we need to do with them. Mm -hmm. And I, I I say we, in terms of, you know, people who are concerned with how language creates actual impacts in the world. Um, because I mean, right now, uh, and I, I, you see this with uh, um, debates over using the N-word, mm-hmm. right? Um, or people who use uh, the F-word to refer to queer individuals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, I think it's really good that we are having these conversations now. And I think we need to keep having these conversations. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's still really near and painful for a lot of people. I mean, there are still people who have relatives who, you know, or ancestors 
who were enslaved or who were beaten or who were, you know, went through really traumatic experiences. And I mean, in some cases, you don't even have to go back that far. Mm-hmm. And so I think we need to have we need to have these conversations. And this is one place where I think it's on people who are allies really need to step up and take some of the weight. So, for example, myself. So I'm an Asian American woman, um, but I, I'm straight. Uh, I'm married. Um, I'm cisgendered, um, et cetera, et cetera. All the, all the different points on the identity wheel. Mm-hmm. So that means that I can talk to certain people about certain aspects of this and recognize how harmful it can be to be marginalized because I have experienced that in certain ways as a female as a nation in America. Um, but I am not constantly going around being triggered by certain words or by certain phrases. Mm-hmm. And I would hope that other people who have different identities would take that up as well and say, okay, so when, when you don't want to have that conversation, I will step in and I will help, right? Not take over, not say, like, everybody should do this. But, you know, ask those, ask those questions that, that we've been seeing people start to ask. Why does this hurt? Mm-hmm. Why is this a problem? And, I mean, just, just starting there... I feel like that is where people have been able to move the needle. Not as much as I think protest and activism is really important. Um, and I mean, part of this, frankly, is just personality. I mean, I'm a professor. I'm not an activist. I have friends who do both. And I'm just like, how? when do you sleep? I, I don't know when you have time to sleep. Yeah. Um, but I think that they work for different ends. I think protest is really important for... Um, pushing on some of the big structural things, right? I mean, we need marches, we need sit-ins. But I think when you're talking about the fine-grained attitudes towards something as simple as a word, I think you need to, we need, we, I think we need to form coalitions and networks of people who will say, I'm willing to have that conversation about that word. Mm-hmm. That's, sorry, long answer. No, that's a perfect way to end our episode. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jennifer. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. Join in for our episode next week on Sunday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.